are listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Good morning and welcome. I'm Dick Carter. I'm so pleased to be able to gather here with you this morning to join in worship. Our scripture reading for today is Romans 5, verses 1 to 11, and I will be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, much more surely then, Now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks for that reading, Dick. As many of you already know, we are in the midst of a teaching series on the book of Romans. Before we dive into our passage for this week, I just want to highlight two things you can be doing on your own to get the maximum amount of benefit out of these teachings. First, I want to encourage you all to read the book of Romans along with us from home. We're going section by section through this book, and we just finished the first section, Romans chapters 1 to 4. Now we're moving on to chapters 5 through 8. So if you want to follow along from home, my suggestion is to read this section over and over again as we work through it here in worship. Maybe tackle a chapter a day, then when you reach the end of chapter 8, go back and start over with chapter 5. Or you could just try sitting down like once a week and reading the whole thing. It's only like three or four pages. Whatever works really. But that's one thing you can do to really get the most out of this series. A second thing you can do to get the the maximum benefit out of these teachings is send in your questions. On the online worship page of our website, where I know many of you are watching this video right now, there's a little area where you can type in your questions about the sermon right there on the website. You can also send questions directly to me via email using the address on your screen. Every couple of weeks until we resume in-person worship services, I'm going to be recording sermon talkbacks, these, these videos where I answer your questions about the sermons. We're due for another sermon talkback sometime this week, but I have only gotten one question in so far. So get those questions in. With all that housekeeping out of the way, let's dive into our passage for today, Romans 5 verses 1 to 11. This passage starts 
a brand new section of the book of Romans, uh, chapters 5 through 8, which also happens to be Paul's longest discourse on salvation. It's the longest single treatment of the topic of salvation found anywhere in the New Testament. In the coming weeks, we're going to talk about Adam and Jesus, dying and rising with Christ, life in the spirit, uh, law and sin. All that kind of stuff is covered in these next four chapters. But in addition to starting out a new section, Romans 5 verses 1 to 11 also wraps up everything we've just covered in the previous section, chapters 1 through 4. There is so much going on in these 11 verses. We're only going to be able to scratch the surface for today, but to pack in as much theological goodness as possible while making things a bit more manageable, I am organizing this teaching under three headings. Peace, weakness, and wrath. Peace, weakness, and wrath. We're going to talk about all three of those realities today and how Paul uses them to present the good news of salvation that is offered through Christ. So let's dig into it and let's start out with peace. Paul talks about peace right at the beginning, verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you have a decent Bible at home, right after that phrase, we have peace, there should be a little footnote, a little, a little marking. If you actually read that footnote, it will tell you that some manuscripts, in fact, it's the older manuscripts of the book of Romans, read, let us have peace. Since we are justified by the faithfulness of Christ, let us have peace with God. I like this translation a lot better because it teases out the fact that this is an invitation. Paul begins this discussion of salvation by inviting his audience, the, the Christians of Rome, into a state of peace. That's really important. The invitational nature of this verse, this whole passage, is super important. If we translate this verse, we have peace, that almost makes it sound like it's, auto, like it's automatic, right? Like, um, we've been justified by faith, therefore, poof, we have peace. But no, peace doesn't work that way. It's not quite that easy. Peace is something we have to enter into. It's something that needs to be received and practiced. That's why the invitational nature of this line is so important. Let us have peace. Now, the invitational nature of this line also picks up on some things that were happening back in Romans 1 through 4. Paul kicked off his letter to the church in Rome by talking about sin, narrating the descent of humanity into chaos and darkness. Essentially, this war of attrition that's been going on since the dawn of time between human beings and God. And now, in chapter 5, Paul shifts his focus to how peace has been secured. But in addition to talking about peace with God... Paul has also been talking about the divisions 
and the animosity that exists between Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome. At this point in history, Jewish and Gentile Christians are not getting along very well. And so Paul moves from talking about peace within the church, peace within the community, to address peace with God. Because of course we know that if you don't have peace with your neighbor, if you don't have peace with your fellow human beings, you're not going to have peace with God. But what does this peace actually look like? What's the nature of the peace that Paul is inviting us into? Anytime in an ancient Roman context that you're talking about peace, we've got to talk about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Hopefully you learned about this in school at some point. But the Pax Romana was essentially the imperialistic promise of peace under Roman rule. And it served as sort of the glue holding together the entire Roman Empire. It was basically the salvation message of ancient Rome. At the time Paul wrote this letter, the Romans controlled most of the known world. They had conquered everything. But as brutal and as violent as the Romans were, they liked to portray themselves as benevolent dictators. You know, loving fascists. The way the Romans maintained stability and order in this massive empire of theirs was through the promise of peace. If you don't fight us, if you just submit and follow the law, then we'll have peace. We'll have order, law and order. Your people will flourish. Your life will be easier. You might even get rich if you just pay respect to Caesar as your Lord and accept the benevolence of your Roman dictators. Of course, if you put up a fight, we'll crush you. We'll annihilate you. We'll wipe you off the face of the earth. You can't beat us. We've got the biggest army in the world. If you rebel against us, you're not going to win. So just accept Roman rule. Accept Roman law and order, and you'll have peace. The Pax Romana. The Pax Romana was peace through strength. Peace through domination. Peace through violence and fear, intimidation. That was the peace of ancient Rome. That's the way every empire since Rome has understood peace. But Paul is Jewish. And so when Paul talks about peace in his letter to the Romans, he's not talking about the Pax Romana. As a first century Jew living under the thumb of the Roman Empire, Paul would have understood peace in terms of shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. Uh, it's how Hebrew-speaking people to this day greet each other. Shalom, shalom, right? But shalom is not peace through domination. Shalom is not peace through violence or the absence of conflict. Shalom is peace through right relationships. Right relationship with God, right relationship with others, right relationship with the earth. In today's language, we might say um, balance 
or equity, justice, righteousness, right? Right relationship with God and others. All that to say, when Paul invites the Roman Christians into a state of peace with God, he does not have the Pax Romana in mind. He's talking about shalom. And we're going to see as we dig deeper and deeper into this passage that the way Paul envisions peace, really the way he envisions salvation, is much closer to this concept of right relationship or shalom. That's peace. Now let's talk about weakness. Verse 6. While we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still weak. In a society like ancient Rome, weakness was not a virtue. Rome was an honor-shame culture, and a particularly violent one at that. Every relationship was marked by power dynamics. Um, Conqueror and conquered. Master and slave. Citizen and foreigner. Even husbands and wives. Every relationship you were a part of in ancient Roman society would have been marked by these unbalanced power dynamics, where you're either in the position of the strong or the weak, and you don't want to be weak. Your class, your reputation, your standing in society, all of that depended on how many relationships you could accumulate in which you were the strong one. And if you were in a position of power and authority, Well, then you don't serve the people who are underneath you. You don't sacrifice for them. You don't concede to them. You certainly don't suffer or die for them. You dominate them. You control them. You rule over them. They suffer for you. It's in that sort of context that Paul writes, While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This is the gospel, right? This is the good news. While we were still weak, while we were still enemies of God, while we were still beneath God, subservient to God, in debt to God, while we were still weak, Christ died died for the ungodly. That is a downright shocking thing to say in an honor-shame culture like ancient Rome. Because we know that the reality we see in the world around us, the, the power dynamics of society, who's in charge, who's at the top, who's at the bottom, all of that reflects what's going on in the divine realm, right? The Romans are brutal and domineering because the gods are brutal and domineering. 
The Empire is all about seizing control and destroying those who are different from you because religion is about seizing control and destroying those who are different from you. What we see in the world is just a reflection of what we believe in the heavens. I mean, if the Romans are in power, clearly the gods put them there. And yet, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This is how God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul's showing his cards here. He's presenting the gospel in a way that completely undermines the Roman narrative of power and control. Instead of assuming that the heavenly realm is just an extension of our violent earthly realm, Paul casts a new vision, a counter-envisioning of the kingdom of heaven. And it's an envisioning that undermines and sticks its thumb in the eye of the fallen, violent kingdoms of this world. The gods are not domineering and controlling and power-hungry. God isn't strong like Caesar. God's weak like Jesus. God is not an emperor sitting on a throne ruling over his enemies through violence. God is a Jewish rabbi hanging on a cross who dies for his enemies to establish peace. Peace, weakness, and wrath. Let's talk about wrath, the wrath of God. Picking up again in verse 8. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through Christ from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now that we have been justified by his blood, we will be saved through Christ, from the wrath of God. Interesting to note, again, here at the end of verse 9, if you have a decent Bible, there should be a little note there, right at the end of the verse, indicating that the words of God were added to the translation. They are not there in the original. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by the blood of Christ, we will be saved through him from the wrath. That's how this verse actually reads in Greek. The translators add, of God, for clarity's sake, you know? But I really wish they wouldn't do that. 
because that makes it sound like Jesus saves us from God. God is angry and wrathful. God's out for blood. God's like an abusive parent who needs to be appeased. But thankfully, Jesus steps in and saves us from God. Jesus is like a big brother who steps in and takes our beating. Isn't that a happy picture? Doesn't that just make you want to give God the Father a big bear hug? Isn't that in keeping with every religion that's ever been? Where the whole point, the whole purpose of religion is to provide bigger and bigger sacrifices to appease the gods. That's certainly how first century Roman religion worked, but that's not how Judaism worked. And that's not how early Christianity worked either. We talked about this back in Lent when we did our series on metaphors of the cross. And we talked about different ways of understanding how Jesus' death reconciles us with God. But to give a little refresher, because I know that was months ago, um, that is not how sacrifices worked in ancient Israel. The purpose of a sacrifice was to cleanse the priest and the worshiper so that they could stand in the presence of God without fear. This is why I get really annoyed when I hear Christians talking about the the violent, wrathful God of the Old Testament. The whole point of the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, is that God isn't like that. You can read the entire Old Testament as a story of a God who calls his people away from the religion of bigger and bigger sacrifices into a state of right relationship and peace. Shalom. So what is Paul talking about here when he says that Christ's death saves us from the wrath? What wrath? Whose wrath? Well, this is a callback all the way to Romans chapter 1, where Paul is narrating the descent of humanity into sin. We'll start in verse 18 of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things God has made. So human beings are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor God as God or give thanks to God. But they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal human beings or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves. For the rest of Romans chapters 1 and 2, Paul narrates the descent of human beings into sin and chaos. So what does the wrath of God look like according to Paul? 
Well, when we turn our backs on God, God gives us up. God lets us go. God lets us slide further and further into chaos and sin until we finally reap the consequences of our own destructive behavior. That's the wrath of God. And it's pretty terrifying. The God of the Bible is not forcing anybody's hand here. God desires right relationship and peace with us, but if we reject that offer, God lets us go. God hands us over to the consequences of our own destructive choices. That's how the ancient Israelites understood the wrath of God, and it's all over the Old Testament. Take Noah's Ark and the flood. Classic story. In the opening chapters of Genesis, uh, humanity has fallen into sin and violence, seeming intent to unmake the world. And what does God do? Well, for a few chapters, God holds back. God extends grace and provision, continuing to hold creation together in spite of our worst efforts to destroy it. Until finally, the sin of humanity reaches the point where God says, fine. You want to unmake the world? Let's unmake the world. And God withdraws God's hands. The, the literal floodgates are opened and everything except Noah and his little boat is destroyed. It's the same story when we get to the sin of King David and all the other kings of Israel. God works with the kings. God blesses the kings until they repeatedly choose evil and violence. And then God hands them over to the consequences of that evil. Even the eventual destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, God extends grace after grace, opportunity after opportunity for God's people to repent and to turn back to God. But eventually God withdraws that hand of protection and the Babylonians sweep through. God offers right relationship. God offers shalom. God offers to transform us through Christ and make us new. But if we reject that offer, and continue to worship idols of our own making, idols of violence and power and war, idols that offer the promise of peace through strength. If we continue to cling to those sorts of idols, God will eventually let us go. Withdrawing that hand of protection and handing us over to our own destruction. That's the wrath of God. That's the warning Paul is giving to these Christians in Rome. Remember, this letter is written to Christians. This is not a warning for non-Christians trying to scare them into converting. This is a warning for Christians to stop worshiping idols of destruction. This is the wrath Paul is talking about. And how has God secured rescue from that wrath. How did God do it? How did Christ open up a way for us to go back home? By becoming weak, taking on flesh, moving into the neighborhood, 
God saves us by handing his own son over to our violence and destruction? We serve a God who became the victim of human violence, willingly. A God who died on the cross in our place, bearing the burden of our sin and violence as the ultimate offer of peace so that we might find shalom, right relationship with God. Peace, weakness, and wrath. Now, we just covered a lot of ground there. There's a lot of ideas, a lot of new concepts, maybe some paradigm-shifting stuff. Hopefully, there's a lot of things percolating in your mind right now. So let's land this a bit. Let's crystallize it, bring things back down to earth by posing a few questions. We're not going to answer those questions today. We've, we've got another eight weeks or so to work through this section of Romans and hopefully get to some of the answers. But here are some questions we should ponder in light of everything we've just talked about. Let's start with peace. What is peace? How do you understand peace? Is peace the absence of conflict? Is peace about maintaining the present order, keeping the peace? Does peace require us to accept things as they are, to not rock the boat too much? Or is peace something that might require a reordering of things? How do we establish peace? How do we maintain peace as a society? Are we on board with peace through strength? Peace through violence and domination, the, the Pax Americana? Is that our story? Is that what we've bought into as Christians? Or does the gospel call that into question? What about weakness? Do we see weakness as a virtue or a flaw? Do we strive in our own lives for the strength of Caesar or the weakness of Jesus? Do we believe that might makes right? Are we drawn to leaders who embody the weakness and humility of Christ? Or do we want a strong man? Someone who will crush our enemies and give us strength. While we're talking about weakness, who are the weak in our context? Who are the, the marginalized, the left behind? Who's at the bottom of the barrel? Who has been excluded from society, from the church? Who have we excluded from our lives? And what might it look like to see God reflected in them? And of course, there's also wrath. This one really gets at our understanding of God. Who is God to you. Maybe you don't believe in God. You're not sure about God. That's fine. Whatever. Maybe, maybe the jury's still out on that one. You're just watching this teaching because 
some religious friend shared it with you, that's, that's fine. But when you think about God, even if God's just an abstract concept, what are you thinking about? Are you picturing like a, a king, a ruler up in heaven who lords over the earth with an iron fist? Maybe someone with a, a long beard? Is God absent like a, a, a disinterested ruler off somewhere else tending to God's own self while the world burns? Is that God? Is God wrathful and angry and out to get you? Is God someone who has to be appeased? Or is God the kind of ruler who lays down his life for his subjects? Is God a king who loves us and seeks relationship with us? What kind of God do you believe in? What kind of God do you hope for? What kind of God are you seeking? What kind of God reflects your deepest sense of what you know to be true about the world? Does that God look like Caesar? Or does that God look like Jesus? This is how God proved his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for meeting us in the midst of our weakness and sin. Thank you for coming, not like Caesar, to dominate and control but like Jesus, with the offer of peace. Thank you for giving up your life for us so that we might find life in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.